All right. <clears throat> On today's episode of Power of the Towel, we talk about that week that was for the Vancouver Canucks. Yeah, you know what? We're going to switch it up for a little while here at Power of the Towel. Everyone's stuck inside. People want people want stuff to binge. People want new things to watch. And frankly, there's not a lot going on in the sports world. Every single sport's shut down. The Canucks, not much going on there. They signed a couple of free agents last week, but that's probably the last news we're going to have for a while. So you know what we're going to do? We're going to switch it up on Power of the Purell, a little quarantine edition of Power of the Towel. I'll break it down. Uh, I'll break it down a bit more after the intro. Palatable! You'll be saying wow every time you use this towel. He's not a person at all. He's a towel. You're a towel. But in Vancouver, mainly it's all about towel power. Are you ready? Welcome to Power of the Purell. I am your host. Nick Bondi, yes. Power of the Purell, the quarantine edition of Power of the Towel. Now, we're going to do things a bit differently, and I hope you're okay with it. What we're going to do is, and I think what I'm going to do is, for now on, is we're going to mix in a bit of pop culture opinions in it as well. I'm, I, But we're still going to have Canucks talk. I think what I'm going to do for the foreseeable future is I'm going to break down one memorable season from a Vancouver Canuck in the past, and I'm going to end with, you know, kind of a breakdown of one of my favorite, you know, albums, TV shows, movies that you should consider consuming during the quarantine. Hey, you're going to have a lot of free time in your hands. You can only watch the same episodes of The Office however many times. You can only listen to, you know, your favorite album that many times. You want something new. You want something new to experience. And that is what I hope to deliver to you on Power of the Purell. I have a sneaking suspicion. I got like a goldfish memory sometimes when I record this podcast. I don't know if I've said Power of the Towel often, but it's Power of the Purell now. That's that's the name of the podcast. We're rebranding. It's an official rebrand. There may be the quickest rebrand in podcast history. We started this podcast in January and two and, a, and you know close to three months later we're already we're already switching it up. But I promise there's still gonna be a bit of Canucks talk and it's gonna be a bit of historical Canucks talk. I think that's what people people want deep dives into this historical stuff. So I'm gonna get I'm gonna do the best I can. And what I want to break down today is something from the twenty eleven team. Ryan Kessler's 2010-2011 season. Yes, we all remember that Nashville series, but it's one of the most interesting seasons in recent Canucks history. That 2010-2011 season, he finished with 41 goals. He was tied with Daniel. Daniel Sedin, who won the Hart Trophy that year, ninth most, most in team history. And if you can remember the season before, back in 2010, he was he was a villain. During that 2010 Olympics, he was he was the American 
playing in Canada, playing in his home NHL city, who hated Canada. He said he hated Canadians. And I remember at the time, there was a lot of people who hated Ryan Kessler because of those comments. They did not take kindly to those words. And that season, finished silver. I think he scored a goal in that in that 5-3 win that the U.S. beat Canada in preliminary round. But he finished with a silver medal, and he finished second in Selkie voting that year in the 2009-2010 season. Yeah, two, two back-to-back medals in a way in a short amount of time. And shaping up that 2010-2011 season, I remember a lot, a lot of the talk was, you know, the Canucks were going to make their name in the playoffs. They've already proven that they were a good regular season team, back-to-back division winners. Everyone knew they were going to make the playoffs and probably win the the Northwest Division at the time, just because it was terrible. You had Edmonton in the in just in the beginning of their decade-long rebuild. Colorado wasn't that good. Calgary, Minnesota, they had a weak division, and the Canucks took advantage of it that year. If you remember, they used to demolish these old Northwest Division teams. But but I digress. Ryan Kessler that year. Again, finished with 41 goals. He was second in power play goals for the entire se- for the entire year. He was tied with Daniel Steen. He had 18 power play goals. But he was down at 18th for even strength goals that year. He was behind guys like Nikolai Kuhlman of the Leafs for even strength goals. He was a power play guy that year. And what shocked me is that I don't I, don't, I just I just don't get how Selkie voting works because he scored he what was so defensive defensive word about scoring on the power play he scored a ton of goals that year on the power play but not that many even strength but he ended up winning the Selkie the Selkie voting at Selkie voting that year and finished first in that one the for his first and only Selkie vote a trophy the first in team history. And what? How did he score forty-one goals? Well, two things. He he was riding a fifteen-point-eight shooting percentage, by far the highest of his career. And he took the by far the most shot attempts of his career, four hundred ninety-six. Second highest was in the low four hundreds, like four hundred ten. Sorry, I don't have the number right in front of me. But even his offensive and defensive zone starts were pretty even. He wasn't taking all. They were evenly split, and you would think a Selkie Trophy winners take a lot of defensive. Draw. No, Ryan Kessler was honestly almost split down the middle. If you look at his offensive and defensive zone starts, pretty much down the middle. He was. You want to look at offensive point share? Tenth in the NHL, right behind Henrik and Daniel Steen. He had a monster year that regular season. And in the playoffs, we all remember what happened in that Nashville series. He pretty much won that series with Vancouver Ducks. Nashville had no no answer to him. But if you remember that first round series, and this is and I remember this just from watching the sh- shout out Sportsnet for playing the versus feed for whatever reason. I only watched like the first few minutes of it, but I didn't watch the highlights of the CBC game on YouTube afterwards just because I wanted to relive it and 
Brian Kessler, that line with him and Burroughs and Mason Raymond in that Chicago series was awesome. He assisted Mason Raymond in Game 7 to set the Canucks up one nothing really early in the game. He was really good in that Chicago series. And another underrated moment that people don't really, I think, I don't think he gets enough credit for is that tying goal in Game 5 against San Jose. If he doesn't score that goal, we don't get one of the most enduring moments of that 2011 playoff run with Kevin Bieksa scoring the goal off the stanchion. We don't get that. We don't get that moment without Ryan Kessler. Now, if you remember that game before, he was also injured earlier in that game as well. He he was playing injured up and up after that point, which obviously hurt the Canucks' chances in the finals. But he was he was awesome that season, and he was awesome that playoffs. And it got me and it got me thinking about the legacy of the season. I think the legacy of the season for the Vancouver Canucks is to set an expectation of what a an unrealistic expectation, of what a second line center needs to do to be considered a good second line center. Brian Kessler was his time during the Canucks when he was in his prime, healthy. He was a good second line center. Forty one goals that year for Ryan Kessler was a big aberration. He was a consistent though. 20 to 25 goal score. And that's good for a second line center. But if you get 41 goals from a second line center, that's unbelievable. That's amazing. And I think that's one of the legacies. Maybe you consider it a bad legacy, but that's one of the legacies of that Ryan Kessler season was it set the expectation that a really good team, a contending team, has to have a 40 goal second line center. That's impo- that's almost impossible. You may... We, we will probably never see that again for the Vancouver Canucks, a 40-goal second-line center. If you're getting 20 to 25 goals from a second-line center, that's awesome. And all, of course, afterwards, everything with the trade and everything, it took a bit of time for fans to warm up again to Ryan Kessler. But he's essentially retired now. He left it, I think, clearly all on the ice. That Ryan Kessler 2010-2011 season, one of the most memorable and impactful in Vancouver Canucks history. Hey, if they don't have Kessler, do they get past Nashville? It's a legitimate question to ask. Ryan Kessler 2010-2011 season, one of the best in franchise history. I mean, Pavel Burry scored 60 goals, but to score 41 goals as a second-line center, and especially scoring 18 on the power play, I'm not sure about the Selkie voting. Honestly, I think the Selkie... I don't get how the Selkie voting works. I think it's honestly just based on reputation. Like, once you're nominated once, like Kessler, you just get nominated every year. I don't see what's defensive forward ability about scoring 18 power play goals, but... Ryan Kessler, one probably the best second line center the Canucks will ever have. Maybe Bo Horvat has something to say about that, but in the future. But Ryan Kessler, 2010-2011 season, one of the most impactful 
and influential in Canucks history. Let me know who you think had another impactful season that I should highlight here because I'm inter- I want to go back. Like Ryan Kessler was just an obvious one for me. I want to go back further. I want to go back in like in the 90s, 80s, even 70s. Which seasons should we highlight next? Give us a shout out on Twitter at Power of the Towel. I'm not changing the handle, unfortunately. I don't want to lose it. At tweet at me at Nick Bondi. Once again, this is uh, Nick Bondi for the Nux Misconduct Podcast Network. Subscribe to the network. You'll get this show. You'll get Meanwhile in Canada, the rebranded Silky and Filthy. You'll get the quickie, and you'll also get sipping on a forty. We're still doing these shows. They may sound a bit different. They may be about a bit different things than the regular recaps, but hey, we're still cranking out podcasts for you. And after this break, we're going to get into one of my all-time favorite classic rock albums, an album I think that once you realize the backstory of this album makes you appreciate it even more. That's coming up right after this ad. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. All right, welcome back to Power of the Purell. Now, this is the this is a new part of the podcast where I'm going to break down, you know, a favorite album, movie, TV show, what have you. You know, like I said at the beginning, everyone's looking for something to binge during this time, something new. People want to experience I like at least I do. I want to watch something new. I'm looking for like a new HBO series to to start binging. Well, let's start off with uh with the album. Now, I'm sure many of you have heard of a band called the Beatles. Pretty popular band, pretty influential band to say the least. And I'm sure you've heard a bunch of their songs, but maybe a lot of you haven't heard all their solo work. I'm talking about the four members of the Beatles after they broke up. You've probably heard, you know, John Lennon's Imagine because of that terrible cover all these celebrities do. Like, shut the fuck up. But in any sense, I want to talk about one specific album, one specific solo album that was released right after they broke up. Now, around, I'm going to set this up this way. Around 1967, around 1966, 1967 is kind of the Beatles' psychedelic period. Now, this is when they were super into LSD, weed, all that stuff, all the psychedelic drugs you can think of, and it produced some of their most interesting work. That's probably my favorite period is all these weird psychedelic songs like Strawberry Fields and I Am the Walrus and all these cool psychedelic-sounding songs that I think still sound amazing. Now, one person who was 
super influenced and who changed by taking LSD was George Harrison, the lead guitarist of the Beatles, the main lead guitarist of the Beatles. Now, he took acid for the first time. I was watching a documentary the other day to get brushed up for this. Around 1966, 1967. And he he said it was amazing. It was like the best experience ever. And that was the time. He also realized at the same time that you couldn't do this stuff forever. If you kept on taking these chemicals, it it would mess with your brain. So he started looking for more natural, more spiritual ways to chase this high. And that's going to be important down the road when it comes to the making and the influences behind this album. But at the same time, George Harrison was becoming quite a good songwriter and quite a accomplished songwriter. Early on, George Harrison would maybe get a song or two on each album. Most of the songs written by the Beatles were written by either John Lennon or Paul McCartney or a combination of the two. So, 1968, Beals release what's called the White Album. It's a double album. And he releases a song called While My Guitar Gently Weeps. And that is his big breakthrough songwriting-wise with the Beals. It's an amazing song. I'm sure you've heard of it. It's one of the Beals' most popular songs. And after that, they go into recording an album called Let It Be. Now, if you if you don't know, they actually filmed a video, a movie. They were supposed to make a movie surrounding the making of this album. But it pretty much shows this band breaking up. They're all fighting with each other. They all hate each other. And George Harrison actually quit at one point during this recording. He quit. He wasn't happy in the group. And he ends up going home and actually writing a song. That would be on this for this upcoming album, his first solo album, but never released with the Beatles. Now he released, he recorded a couple other songs around this time. You actually, they actually released, you actually listened to these demos of songs, and one of them was called "All Things Must Pass," a great song. And it's you know, thinking about you know this quarantine coronavirus thing, it's all things must pass. It's gonna pass. That's kind of the main, it's all material, it's all going to pass. That's the main message of his song. But they actually ended up recording it with the Beatles, at least a demo, and they rejected it. Now, after Let It Be, they actually ended up abandoning the entire session. And Paul and Paul McCartney goes to their longtime producer, George Martin, says, we want to go... We want to give this one last shot. And George Martin says, yeah, sure. But only if it's like the old times. None of this filming, none of this recording. Just like the old times. And they say, sure. And end up starting a session for an album called Abbey Road. Now, Abbey Road, George Harrison really comes alive as a songwriter. He writes probably the two best songs on that album. In something, and here comes the sun. You can debate which songs are the best off that album, but those are two, arguably the two best songs. And he wrote both of them, especially 
something. It's a you've pro- again, you've probably heard the song. It's been covered by so many artists. And even Paul McCartney, uh, many years later, and even at the time, said that's his big breakthrough. That was his big breakthrough as a songwriter. In any event, they break up. The Beatles break up shortly after the recording of this album. Technically, Let It Be is the last album they ever released, but Abbey Road was actually the last album they ever recorded. After that, they all start to do their own solo stuff. Paul McCartney's working on a solo album. John Lennon's working on a solo album. Ringo Starr's working on a solo album. But George Harrison is just content at the moment to be a session musician, to be a producer on his own. That is until Phil Spector, pretty popular producer in the 70s, goes up to him at a recording session and says, hey, you should consider, you know, starting your own solo project. You know, everyone else is doing it. You should too. And George Harrison thinks about it, and he calls him up a few days later and says, hey, I've got I've, I've got a few songs that I want you to hear. What do you think? And he plays them all these songs, and here's Phil Spector's quote. It was endless. He had literally hundreds of songs, and each one was better than the rest. He had built up all this emotion. He had literally stockpiled all these songs from when he was with the Beatles, but because he only was allowed maybe two tracks, one track, two tracks, an album, he just had this stockpile of songs. So he ends up starting to go through this album, and he has so many songs, so many songs piled up from this time, he ends up becoming a triple album. He ends up releasing a triple album. He calls it All Things Must Pass after that song that was supposed to be on Let It Be. And there's so many great songs off this album. I'm just looking at the track list right now. And go through the Wikipedia page for this album. Pretty much every song he recorded on this album has some sort of origin while he was with the Beatles. But, like I said, because he wasn't allowed more than two tracks, these songs were getting released anywhere. And they all have a very... I'm not even a fan of spiritual music. I wouldn't consider myself a religious person. But all these songs on this album have such a religious overtone. But it sounds awesome. Of course, the biggest song off this album is a song called My Sweet Lord. He ended up getting actually weirdly enough, sued over the song because it sounded like some older song. And it's actually a big case in terms of plagiarism, unconscious plagiarism in music history. But we're not going to talk about that. The song, My Sweet Lord, is an amazing song. And it's also a super religious song if you listen to the lyrics. But it doesn't come across as a super religious song. And that's what makes this album so great. Like I said, I'm not that much of a religious person, but to see all these songs have a religious overtone and not get too preachy, I think that's one of the biggest things about this album. 
And I think this album was a bit of competition as well. He wanted to prove that he was a viable artist on his own. He wanted to prove that it wasn't just Paul McCartney and John Lennon who could write songs and write hits. He was capable of it too, but he wasn't given the opportunity. I said it's a triple album. It is technically a triple album, but I will say the one thing that has aged the worst about this album is sort of the instrumental jams at the end. You'll listen to them once. You're not interested in them again. But it's essentially, it says a triple album by name. It's essentially a double album of just all these awesome songs. Again, that he, that all these, and it's amazing to think listening to this album. Man, all these songs could have been on Beatles records. But because there was such an ego involved, oh, I want all these spots for my songs, they wouldn't let him have any of these spots on the album for all these awesome songs. In terms of the lyric, it's not all religious songs as well, contrary to popular belief. It is mostly a lot of religious songs. But there's even songs like Wawa or Run of the Mill. They're actually about the breakup of the band itself, which may not seem like a big deal, except for the fact that there's not really many songs about it from their perspective. He was the only one who was willing to write about it. Everyone else kind of put aside it and wanted to be known as solo artists. But he wrote he wrote a couple of songs about it, and it's pretty interesting to read about the background of those songs as well. Even a song like uh, The Art of Dying. Very, again, religious song because he had gone into, you know, Eastern, Eastern religion, Eastern spirituality, and he was super influenced by that because... He was searching for that spiritual high instead of trying to just get stoned off LSD all the time, which he was smart about realizing that you couldn't do that all the time. It would destroy your brain. So he started searching for that in other ways and it led him to write songs like Art of Dying, which is about reincarnation and the process of dying. And then he wrote that song in 1966, four years before they broke up. He had that song stored up for four years. So again, it's essentially just all these awesome songs George Harrison wrote while he was with the Beatles but never got a chance to record. And this is, if there's one solo Beatles record to listen to, it's this one. This is, I think, in my opinion, the best solo record any of the four members of the Beatles recorded. I like John Lennon's Imagine, obviously a, a good record, but this one has so many good songs, and it's a double album. Again, it's like close to 20 tracks of just amazing songs that, again, could have been on any of these Beatles records, but for whatever reason, didn't weren't allowed on them. This was an awesome record to me the first time I listened to it. As soon as I started digging into the backstory of how this was created and how he had to pretty much fight to get even with he was with the Beatles to get his songs on the record and then to come out after they're all done and be like yeah I'm just as good as you guys that to me solidified this album as one of my favorite classic rock albums ever and I want to know what are your some of your favorite you know it could be a music album but it also could be you know movie TV shows that or any piece of art that you like more after you've researched the backstory and found out like, how it was made. It's like to me, this is this is the perfect example of an album that once you understand 
the backstory of how it was created and how we had to work to get this out there. All these songs out there. Makes you appreciate this album. I think a lot more. Anyways, that's this week's episode of Power of the Purell. Make sure to follow us on Twitter at Power of the Towel. Myself personally at Mick Bondi. And make sure to subscribe to the network while you're at it. We're still making podcasts. We still got the quickie coming out every day. Trevor's doing a great job recording an episode on every NHL team and where they stand. Sipping on a 40 still, still going. Kyle's still doing that. And they got a rebranded Silky and Filthy. Meanwhile, in Canada, who doesn't like some classic Canadian content, some CanCon? Once again, I'm your host, Nick Bondi. I appreciate you listening to this rebranded episode, this new format I'm going to try out. Hey, we don't want to, sometimes, you know, in times like this, it's not much going on in hockey. You want to escape. You want to enjoy good art. That's what I'm here for. I'm here to to give you the lowdown on, on something new that you can experience and enjoy during this quarantine. Once again, this is Nick Bondi for Power of the Purell and the Next Misconduct Network. Thank you for listening. Oh, my God.